Show. Media. Presentation. Hello. Scott Williams. Yo, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> good. How are you? I've been pretty good. Can't complain. Hello world, my name is Ryan Lindsay and this is my podcast, Self-Quarantined, presented by Fusha Media. It's the podcast with frank and honest conversations about sports and life, from the sporting world to the real world dealing with this pandemic. As you heard from our open of this episode, we have three-time NBA champion with the Chicago Bulls from the first three-peat, Mr. Scott Williams. Because of the pandemic and being quarantined, everyone in the sports and social media worlds are talking and reacting every week to the documentary about the Bulls in the 90s called The Last Dance. And I am actually lucky enough to know a member of three of those teams. Warning, as I've said before, I've had many nicknames in sports radio. So you'll hear Scott call me Yoda. That's my Phoenix name. I have a Portland name. I have an ESPN name. I have a Vegas name, but I do not have a porn name. If you like the show, please rate and review it on the app that you found us in the first place. Like I've said before, it really helps us grow the product and allows people to find us because of the almighty algorithm. Don't forget to tell your friends and family about us. They need podcasts too. If you have a comment or question about a past episode or a suggestion about a future one, you can follow and interact with us on social media. Twitter is S Quarantine Pod. Instagram is Self Quarantine Pod. Our company accounts on both platforms are at Fusha Media. We also post promotional videos and logos about that week's episode to hopefully get you interested in listening to some or all of that week's conversation. Imagine less than a year going from the lowest of the lows to the highest of the highs. That happened to this episode's guest, Scott Williams, and this wasn't even the worst moment of his life. But through it all, he had Coach Dean Smith and the Carolina family. That's where we started our conversation with Scott. How a kid from Southern California played basketball on the East Coast for the Tar Heels. I would try to make a long story, not quite as long. But I grew up in Southern California, uh, Los Angeles area. And I always wanted to be a UCLA Bruin and a um, Los Angeles Laker. I, that, I was it. I mean, that's where basketball started and ended for me. I toted a blue and gold book bag from my earliest memories of going to going to riding to school on the bus and or on my bike, uh, right up until probably about my uh, sophomore year in high school when I started to say this is not cool. I'm never going to get a girlfriend this way carrying <laughs> carrying this duffel bag around. But anyway, um, when I when I was coming out of high school, there um, was a Another big kid, uh, his name was Kevin Walker. Uh, he was 6'10". He wasn't in my conference uh, league, but he was um, a kid that I'd face up against sometime in the holiday tournaments and stuff. And I always ate his lunch. But Walt Hazard was the coach at UCLA at the time, and he kept going to Walker's games. And there were, you know, back then we didn't have internet and all that stuff. So you got your news from the newspaper, the LA Times. And if you get your name in the LA Times, you were big time, right? So it kept getting his, uh, you know, these reports that the UCLA is interested. Walker um, is uh, being recruited by Coach Hazard. He's going to his games, and I'm not getting any love from the Bruins whatsoever. Meanwhile, I got teams like Villanova, fresh off a national championship, North Carolina, 
uh, Jim Valvano at NC State, uh, uh, Bobby Crimmins in Georgia Tech and uh, Syracuse, Bobby Knight, Indiana, got all these top schools uh, recruiting me hard, coming to my coming to my games, meeting with my principals and my teachers, and I can't get any love from the hometown Bruins. So when it came time for the North Carolina visit, Coach Smith was very savvy. He invited my mother to come with me on my <laughs> official visit uh, to, to Chapel Hill. And uh, once my mom got a taste of that uh, real small town, college, collegiate atmosphere, uh, she was sold. And she wanted me to tell Coach Smith before we had even left uh, we arrived on a Friday, left on a Sunday. She was already for me to uh, go ahead and commit to uh, the Tar Heels. And I hadn't even taken an official uh, visit to the Bruins uh, to see them yet. But the thing that really kind of turned me off with UCLA, and I was still kind of set on wanting to go there, was when the coach told me the reason why they hadn't contacted me is that one of the secretaries had transposed a digit of my telephone number incorrectly and that they would get a busy signal every time that they called on the phone. Well, I'm only 35 to 40 minutes, uh, 45 minutes with traffic away from uh, Westwood uh, where UCLA is at. So, you know, I got coaches flying, you know, 3000 miles uh, to come visit me and they can't jump in their car uh, and and come 45 minutes to, to, to see a practice or a game. I knew something was uh, a little off with that. So that's how Coach Smith, um, not to say that was the only reason, but uh, my mother was a big factor in making me want to go to school there as well. What did Coach Dean Smith mean to you? Oh, well, you know, it was a great decision. Um, I always had family uh, drama growing up. Um, there was a lot of verbal abuse and physical abuse in the, in the house. That was one of the reasons I didn't put two and two together at 17, 18 years old, but it was one of the reasons I believe my mother wanted me further from mm. home mm. Uh, in a good situation uh, for, with a good man. And, you know, Coach Smith didn't promise me anything basketball-related. He promised me that I'd get a good education. He promised me that um, I'd be a better man when I left the university, uh, and that was it. Everything else I'd have to earn on my own with, through hard work, uh, and that was something that was – really important to my mother. Um, so during my freshman year, right before the start of my sophomore year, actually, uh, my mother left home, um, got an apartment across town while my father was actually visiting me at uh, UNC. So things rapidly declined after that, his mental state to the point where he found out where she was and, um, uh, and committed mur- a murder and suicide. Oh, and Scott, I'm sorry. With, yeah, with Coach Smith there, uh, he delivered the news to me in my dorm room early one morning. And uh, he was amazing the way he flawlessly stepped in and took a, uh, a father figure type role in my life. Uh, I wanted to sit out the my sophomore year, it happened the first day of practice. So I wanted to sit out that year since I still had a redshirt year available. 
Uh, and he told me no. <laughs> I think he thought that uh, I would, you know, would drift mm. uh, away from the team and the program. I wouldn't be uh, uh, going on road games and uh, he wouldn't be able to keep his eye on me um, as well as if I was continuing to play. So um, and it was it was the best thing for me, as it turned out, because um, Coach Smith's wife was a. Um, uh, doctor, and she found a therapist for me to talk to about uh, some, some of my feelings that I was having around it. But I never felt comfortable uh, with that, and I thanked um, Mrs. Smith for that. But I felt more comfortable talking to people I know, my teammates. Um, I felt my therapy was trying to concentrate on a Dean Smith practice, you know, remembering the thoughts for the day or the defensive emphasis or the offensive emphasis or uh, just the plays uh, for that two and a half to three hours involved with practice was the best therapy that I could, I could probably uh, receive anywhere and sitting down with somebody for 45 or 50 minutes. Do you stay close to him until the end? Yeah. You know, coach Smith, um, he, he found financial advisors for me, agents for me uh, that I could trust. Um, he was a big part of uh, everything that I did in my life, even before I asked my uh, wife to marry me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I talked to Coach, I talked to Coach Smith about uh, making those types of life decisions, and hell, we all did. He was there for all of his players, not just me, in that type of capacity. Whether he was occupation, um, if you didn't matter if you played in the NBA or if you were a doctor or a lawyer or, or driving a truck, you know, Coach Smith was was always there for all of his players. We were all his <laughs> sons, so to speak, yeah. uh, for lack of a better term. But he took a specially close interest in the things that I was doing and how I was, how I was, um, you know, adjusting to life in Chicago or life in the pros. Now, Coach Smith had a, a memory that was unmatched by. Uh, anybody. Uh, he could meet somebody in an airport in Seattle on his way to do a speaking engagement and three years later bump into him and remember their name, how many children they had. Uh, so to say that he, he knew everything about his own players, uh, called my aunt by her first name. He, um, you know, knew my kids' names. Uh, it was amazing. And towards the end for Coach Smith, he lost a lot of that, mm. which was which was the hardest thing for all of us uh, to watch somebody that had been so put together and organized and, and wound tight uh, that the family started kind of trying to shield him from some from some of that that he didn't have to be so ashamed that he couldn't remember certain people or certain details about certain players. Um, so it was a little tougher to get contact, and I wanted to respect that uh, I did never wanted to push or pry but um, the times that we talked it was always special do you have a chance to say goodbye I did not get a chance to officially mm -hmm. say goodbye I didn't know how bad things were towards the end um, but we had a reunion game to celebrate the 100 years of Tar Heel basketball and um, coach Williams was coaching at the time as the head coach, but Coach Smith came out with Co Coach Guthridge and they brought him, all the players on the court for like one kind of final pass from mm -hmm. 
decade to decade, and I can't remember who made the final bucket. Probably Jordan, but I don't remember exactly. <laughs> but actually, I should think it was Tyler. I think it was Tyler Hansbrough. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Coach Smith came onto the floor, and I had a chance to be with everybody. Of course, everybody wanted to come say hello and greet him. And I know for a fact um, that when he when he, when I when we spoke, he knew exactly who I was, uh, and that was something that I always took with me. When was the first time you met Michael Jordan? Uh, on campus uh, at UNC, MJ used to come back and play uh, in the summertime with uh, the current team members, and there would be other Carolina guys that would show up and work out. So playing in those pickup games with uh, MJ was like, you know, the greatest sports moment of my of my life, of course. Uh, I couldn't afford the Air Jordans back in the day, but <laughs> <laughs> I always, always, always loved them. I loved the style of play. You know, I grew up uh, as a young kid. My idol was Dr. J, and I had the big fro. I had to wear the double wristbands, you know, the high socks with the red, white, and blue stripes across the top. Um, and as I got a little bit older and late into junior high and high school, I idolized James Worthy. He was playing for the Lakers. Um, I loved the way he could just, you know, shoot the ball from the outside and, and fly down the floor. Uh, and he became kind of my idol. But um, in fact, I wore number forty-two um, in college because Worthy wore number forty-two um, for the Lakers. Hmm. I didn't realize later when I looked up into the rafters in the Dean Dome one day that. They had 52 with Worthy on the top of it. And I went, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't realize that he had switched his number yeah. from wow. 52 in college uh, to 42 with the Los Angeles Lakers when he was drafted uh, to the Lakers number one. But, uh, yeah, that was that was always a treat when guys like that would come back. You know, Walter Davis, Michael, Michael Jordan, Brad Doherty, those guys would come back and play with us. It was a big throw. The Michael Jordan that you played with, pickup games in the summer how different was that than the michael jordan that you got to know as the rookie in 1990 on those bulls teams not a whole lot of difference i played hard we had a dude on our team named steve bucknell from london england who was probably our best um, perimeter defender and uh, the buck used to try to check michael jordan <laughs> and it, it was it was laughable because you had thought, you know, this dude, okay, MVP of the league, your scoring champion, he would take it easy on Buck. But no, I mean, he he was out to, to destroy Buck. I mean, Buck, you know, he 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 had a little chip on his shoulder, like, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of anybody, which is cool. But then your face, your face is like the baddest dude to ever put on a pair of basketball shoes, uh, basketball shoes. So. He didn't stand much much of a chance, and we ribbed him a little bit, you know, in the locker room, which would always piss Buck up, Buck off a little bit. But uh, you know, Jordan was intense like that. He he did not want to lose. He didn't even want people to think you were even a possibility that you you might win one out of a hundred games against him. Like he he'll shut you down like that. Like you'll never you'll never win. You'll never come close to it. You won't even think about winning. When you dream about playing me one on one, you don't even dream about beating me. That's that's how that's how mighty he wants to shut you down. I mean, it's true. I got to play a lot of one on one with Michael uh, in Chicago uh, when I was with the Bulls. Kind of my first year and my second year, he was trying to work on his low post game. He'd have to get to the Pistons and he'd play from the outside and get banged around a lot. 
and I think he wanted to work on playing from the free throw line down. That's all we could play. Uh, I couldn't guard him out out on the perimeter, obviously. So we would just play in post up. Like we'd have a guy throw the ball into the post, mid post, free throw line area, and we would play from there. Going into the draft, you go undrafted, but it's almost like you won the lottery because you, you signed with the Chicago Bulls, a team that was was ripe for a championship. What was that like? You're walking into that locker room. You know, I was the, I always say this, and I'll probably say this to the day that I die, the luckiest undrafted player in the history <laughs> of the NBA. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I almost, but I almost screwed it up. Oh no! Uh, so I go. I get. I don't get. I, I don't get drafted. I end up tr- going down to Charlotte. The Hornets had a expansion franchise that was just two seasons into the league, and JRE had got drafted the year before there, who was my teammate for three years at North Carolina. And I knew I could play, you know, with Jay. I wasn't as good, but I knew I could hold my own and not get embarrassed. And they had Kenny Gaddison, some other big guys on the squad that I went, yeah, okay, you know what? I think I can make that roster uh, as a big. And they failed me on my physical. Oh, <laughs> I was like, well, you knew I had a bad shoulder. It was one of the reasons why I didn't get drafted. Mm. And I come down here, and the thing that you know about, you decide you're going to fail me on my physical, is not sign me to a, you know, even a, a make good contract. I call my agent. He says, listen, I just talked to the Chicago Bulls. I got a ticket at the airport waiting for you. This is, you know, back we had paper tickets and things of that nature. You yeah. didn't have apps and stuff. So I hustle over. I go. I leave straight from the Hornets uh, facility and head straight to the, uh, the airport and get on a plane to Chicago. First person I see is Jerry Krause, and he says, yeah, we heard you failed your physical in Charlotte. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Word travels fast in this league. <laughs> But they signed me to a, uh, a make good contract and put me on the summer league team out in, um, we practiced in Los Angeles. The games were in Los Angeles at uh, Pepper, not, not Pepper, at Loyola Marymount okay, yeah. uh, University. Mm-hmm. You know, no cameras, hot little gym, didn't sell any tickets. You know, it was just basically family and friends in there for the most part. It's not like it is today where every game's advertised and it's on ESPN and NBA TV or whatever. It, it was a different a different league back then. But here's another little side bit about that. So I don't get drafted, and Jordan invites me to play in a pickup basketball game that he was doing for his buddy's basketball uh, camp. He had a camp in Greensboro for kids, underprivileged kids that couldn't afford camp anywhere. They did a camp for free for these campers, and Jordan uh, – and some other NBA guys that he'd call up, some guys from the Hornets, Monkey Bogues played, um, Charles Oakley, some of his old teammates, Rod Higgins, guys like that would come down and would play this game for the just for the campers um, and their parents, immediate parents, the family. And uh, we, we had a blast, and we played hard. Uh, of course, Jordan set this up. In fact, yeah. <laughs> he would walk in the locker room and say, if you didn't come here to play hard, you, you know, there's the door. Please leave. Um You'd say it and like we, that? We, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, it was deadly serious. I mean, guys <laughs> taking charges, getting knocked down, um, elbows being thrown, no easy layups. It was not just a picnic like an all-star game. We'll put on a show for these kids and get some slam dunks, shoot some threes. No, it was it was serious business. In fact, so I'm on Jordan's team, and uh, we're down one in the final moments. I have the ball in my hand, and I'm thinking – 
I could shoot this ball, <laughs> or I could get it to I could get it to the best player on the planet. <laughs> so I throw a strike, perfect pass, like Coach Smith taught me. Right at Jordan, he hits a baseline jumper from about twenty, eh, about in twenty nineteen, twenty nineteen, twenty one feet, and uh, he cans it for the one point win. <laughs> and I think that, and, and so after that, he's the one I find out years later puts the bug in Krause's ear to give me a look see. Oh wow. If that's the case, it seems like it was more of a love-hate relationship, especially between Michael and Kraus compared to Scotty just seemed like he straight up hated him. But Michael, it, it seemed like it was he used him as a motivation when he wanted to. But what was the relationship like with him, with them, with you, with the team? What's the, what was the whole Kraus player dynamic? What was that like? It was pretty, pretty accurately displayed. Uh, yeah. In, in the documentary, uh, Jerry had good qualities and he had some bad ones. Um, I, I will just say it like that. I, I had a lot of bad, bad situations with Jerry. And I say that saying that this is the dude that gave me my chance in the NBA. You know, I had some other opportunities and I could have maybe gone out to Seattle and some other places. Um, but I know my NBA career would not have been the same. I wouldn't have won the championship rings. I probably wouldn't have played as long as I did because I got in a situation with professionals like Paxson and Cartwright and Jordan that taught me how to be a pro. So I owe a lot of my success to the fact that Jerry Krause gave me my chance. The problem I had were some of the other things that the qualities that Jerry, uh, that he possessed that worked against him being a well-respected general manager by the players that he had on a squad. Uh, and, and everyone had their own different issues. Mine so, so much weren't contractualized, uh, but he did not understand my relationship with Coach Smith and went to Coach Smith with some information that wasn't true about me. Yeah. Uh, and the one thing that I never wanted to do was ever embarrass uh, myself in Coach Smith's eyes or Coach Smith uh, the university or the, uh, the North Carolina basketball program. Um, and when Jerry did that, he, he smeared me badly. Uh, and Coach Smith told Jerry, it's not true. What you're telling me is not true. And Scott will be willing to prove that. Uh, and I don't understand why Jerry just didn't come to me because I had, still had a good relationship with Jerry at that point. Didn't talk to him a whole lot. I was the 12th man on the team. So there's no reason for me to talk to him a lot, but, I still, you know, respected him and thanked him for giving me my opportunity. But when he when he did that, it really soured me because that was that was like my father. Like you could have come to me first and talked to me about whatever it was, and I don't really want to say what it is, but you could have talked to me about it, and I would have been happy to to prove my innocence. Uh, and when he said that to Coach Smith and, Co- and, and Coach Smith told him to believe me, and I and Coach Smith told me I was waiting for Jerry the next day at the practice facility. And it's not like for, like me to, I was always just a sailor and I always believed it was someone else's ship. Whether there was still Jackson was the captain or Jerry Reinsdorf or whoever. There was someone above me. I was just, you know, a hired deckhand. Uh, but I cussed him inside out, upside down. Like I've never cussed anybody out before in my entire life. Cause I just, wouldn't understand why you just couldn't come to me and let me and let me show you that the, whatever it is that you heard is not accurate. Um, and that's and then so Jerry backed down, but he never apologized. Mm-hmm. 
to be our coach Smith. And that just left a real bitter taste uh, in my, in my mouth that I can't trust this, this man anymore. So there were some other things with, you know, locking me out of practice after we won the championship so they could look at another player. And I had to sneak in to the health club oh you know, between, between workouts. We had to go two days for about uh, 10 days and I'd have to sneak in and play with the doctors and the lawyers and the bankers uh, while the, between the two bulls practices and get back out of there before they would return to practice just to get a little run and a sweat. I'd play the point and, you know, you know, whatever I could do, whatever I wanted against these, you know, old, old men that were, were stiff and unathletic, but I just had to get a little bit of a sweat and have a ball in my hand with some people around me and bodies around me. Um, you know, that was, that was tough for me to handle too, because I played, you know, against the Pistons. I played against the yeah, Knicks. Yeah. I played in the playoffs. I played against the Lakers. I contributed to that championship, even though I was an undrafted player that year. Uh, and I just felt as though I understand if you want to look at another player, but don't tell me I'm not physically fit to play when I know that I, when everybody knows that I was, I've been playing pickup ball right up until the start of, you know, season starts. And then you tell me you're not welcome around, around your teammates. That was tough. Yeah, I bet. You brought up your rookie year playoffs. What do you remember about that pist your first Pistons Bulls game? <laughs> well, you know, I it, it's hard to just go to that that first game because I got to go back to training camp because I'd never seen uh from the the, the first night before practice there's a team dinner. Uh, and then there's a, a team meeting. And from that moment before the first practice, the stage was set that we needed to have the best record in the Eastern Conference so we could have home court advantage over the Detroit Pistons. So if a game, to a game seven, it would be played in Chicago Stadium because they did not feel they could win a game seven uh, on the road against the Pistons. So I'd never seen a team so hell-bent from the first day of practice until the first time we faced them in the playoffs. Forget the regular season. I think we, 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 waxed, we waxed them in the regular season, but we knew that that had nothing to do with the playoffs. So it never really took our focus. We either beat them 3-1 during the regular season or 4-0 in the regular season. I don't remember exactly. It's been 30 years, but uh, – those games didn't matter. It, it it never took away the intensity in which Jordan performed every drill, every scrimmage, uh, the intensity of the film sessions and the scouting reports. I'd never seen a man so uh, focused, possessed, driven than than Michael did Michael Jordan that year. Everyone talks about oh, you know, this Mamba mentality that Kobe Bryant had. I'm telling you right now. That is an absolute joke compared to what Jordan was in 1991. I don't know about the rest of the years, but 1991 was freakishly scary, almost to a sickness degree in the which he approached everything. It ruined Dennis Hobson. Absolutely, absolutely ruined him because we played starters against the subs. Pretty much every every drill that we did, Phil always had us go up against the starting group. One, he wanted timing for the starters and get on the same page and putting in that triangle. It takes a long time to, to uh, the basics you can get down pretty quick, but the nuances of the way the defense and read and react stuff. So we needed all those guys on the same page. So we always played the starters against the subs. And 
we would always get our butts kicked. And Jordan would be so physical and so verbally abusive to Dennis Hobson that it just wrecked his career. And I mean, you know, remember Hobson led Ohio State in scoring his yeah. senior year, 30 points a game. He averaged 16 for four years with the New Jersey Nets. I mean, guy could score the ball. But after facing Jordan, Jordan just being up in his grill defensively and physical with him on offense, and it, it, it just ruined Hobson. He went into a shell. He could barely play. Um, in fact, they traded him, I think, two or three games into the next season. They had to let him go because it was, he was, just, it was just too much for him. Give me a good Jordan uh, practice story. Well, I, I can piggyback off of the one I just told you was that um, Hobson would always get his ass kicked, uh, except for one day Hobson had just had enough of that shit and just decided <laughs> he was going back at Jordan with bows and up in his chest and, and you know nose to nose in his grill and was kicking his ass on the offensive end. And we ended up, beating the starters we had never beat the starters before and it was all because of what hobson had done he had like taken off the gloves and said <laughs> no more and we ended up stacy king and i we were the young guys on the team it's really kind of more the comic relief of the intensity i guess if you call it that way especially stacy uh we ended up picking hobson off like there's no all right, let's get together and, and talk, you know, talk. we just after the game winning bucket we picked him up and we we practice at a health club. So we had Hobson, uh, not quite on our shoulders, but pretty close to it. And we carried him through to the health club, did an extra lap back to the locker oh, room, back to our private locker room. <laughs> we never did find out what happened after that. We were so excited. But then the next day, you come back and you think, okay, this is the start of something, right? No, wrong. <laughs> Hobson, <laughs> Michael ends up going right back to his normal routine, and Hobson goes right back into his shuttle. You guys face him in the playoffs. You sweep him. Then something that took a lot of time in that, then I can't remember what episode it was of, of the uh, documentary Last Dance, the infamous leaving the court early. And I see old Scott Williams as Isaiah and Lambeer <laughs> walking right past you. You're eyeballing them. Talk about that. What was the re- when? Tell me from the, yeah, tell me from the beginning uh, what 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 when you like what were you what were you guys thinking? Uh, I was shocked. I, well, if if you remember, Jordan's standing right next to me, and mm. we're both shocked. Like these cats are really dipping out of here. I mean, Isaiah literally dipped down. I know, like I saw he that. Bent yeah. at the waist and dipped down and hid behind Lambie or somebody as he as he scooted by our bench. That was the way back to their locker room and. It, it was it was surreal. I had never seen anything like that. You know, it's my rookie year, so I'm like, everything's new to me, and the playoffs are new, and the intensity. We we had swept the Knicks, and um, God, I can't remember who we played in the, in the oh Philadelphia. We pretty much swept them. I mean, Hershey Hawkins had a shot at the buzzer to give them one win, but we we were we were rolling right through the playoffs, and the other teams congratulated us after getting their tail, you know, busted and handed it to them. And I was just surprised that a team that had won two world championships couldn't find it in themselves to congratulate the team that had, you know, had struggled against them for three years and finally broke through. That was, that was probably the, the class, 
the least classy thing I'd ever seen in pro sports ever done. Lack of sportsmanship, you can say that, but it was it was just there was no class involved with it. And that was even as a young player, I was twenty two, maybe twenty three years old, just turned twenty three. I, I just I, I, it, it stuck with me. Like I always said, someone someone can kick your butt up on uh, on the court. You, you shake you shake their hand. If you gave it your all, you shouldn't have any shame. You shake their hand and say good. Congratulations. That that's it. You don't have to say good luck in the next round. You, you don't have to fake any kind of emotions, but you, you at least shake their hands and say congratulations. And to not receive that was it was a shock to myself and to Jordan and. Did anybody say anything on our entire team? Anybody say anything while they're walking past? You remember? No, no, they no. slinked. They slinked out of there, like you saw in the video. They they slinked right up on out of there. I don't think there was maybe one or two Pistons. Someone had said Dumars uh, stopped and, and shook a couple guys' hands. I didn't see it. I don't remember it anyway. Mm. Hell, we were excited. I was excited. I'm like, we're going to play for the NBA Finals. I was thinking that I how far I had come from crying in my dorm room on draft night to being in the NBA finals as a rookie. And I was in playing and contributing. I mean, that's kind of like stuff that's unheard of really. Yeah. yeah. Most guys that aren't, aren't drafted up on a crummy team for a couple weeks. Uh, and then another crummy team for a couple weeks, you have a cup of coffee here and a cup of coffee there. And then you're out of the league and you're playing over in Europe. You know? So I, I felt as I was the, luckiest man on the face of the planet <laughs> did that overshadow did that them slinking off did that was that a big topic when you guys got back to the locker room and we're celebrating or when did that become this big deal that you know 30 years later or whatever 25 years later is something that is still talked about and still was, a lot of vitriol about it yeah yeah we, we we definitely talked about it. i remember talking about it on the plane riding back i, mean, I don't think i, I don't remember talking about it in the locker room celebration you didn't have all the celebrations like they do now on the court hell we didn't even have a conference championship trophies you know now they bring out stages and uh, onto the floor they drop confetti and you know all those types of things you know that they, they do and they pre- present a most valuable player outstanding performer for the conference and all that stuff we didn't have all that back in the day especially if you if you won it on the road uh you, you just wanted to get back to your lock the, the safety of your locker room because you never knew how the the fans would react you know the, yeah. the uh, home fans would react so you know, the safest place was off the floor back in the tunnel or back in the locker room you know, we just we just hightailed it back to the locker room after after the final buzz, it went out there. There's a couple little, you know, high fives on the court, some hugs, but for the most part, you know, you let security clear the path and you get your, get your tail back to the locker room. So you guys beat the Lakers in five. And then there's that iconic shot of Jordan hugging the Larry Bryan trophy tight and shaking his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, what do you remember from that time? The game ends to in the locker room. Uh, take me, t- take us into that, into that environment. Well, it's great. I, I love that footage because it's 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 hard to recapture that. I I always say that you know, so it's like, well, what's the like winning a championship? Well, it's hard. It's hard to put into words. I I've never experienced uh, anything greater than that uh, in the real world outside of the birth of my two kids. I mean, that, that's about the closest I can put it. If you've ever become a father or a mother, I, you know, probably even more so being a mother, uh, that's about the only thing that I could equate to it because. You know, you can't get it from sex, drugs, alcohol, or money or fame. That doesn't that doesn't give it to you 
the same way when you can win a championship, when something that you've dreamed about from a kid or you've struggled with rehab, a shoulder or a knee or the disappointment of not being drafted or, uh, you know, being on a bad situation where you're not getting minutes, uh, whatever the case be, and, and, and still persevering through all of those obstacles, um, the sacrifices that, that go into that, you know, missing weddings of, of friends and birthday parties or uh, dances and school dances or, or whatever the case might have been that it took you to arrive at that point, it all comes flooding back to you. Like all that sacrifice, all that, all that pain, all that whatever, uh, running in the summertime, extra weight training, it, it comes flooding back to you and you just let it out. And that's how that whole, that whole season was for Jordan. So for you see him hugging that championship the negative stories about you're just a score. You'll never win a championship. The injuries had the broken foots, uh, you know, the, tra- the training that goes on behind the scenes, the weightlifting, trying to get stronger, working this low post game with me after practice or before practice, all, all those types of emotions, they just come out and they overwhelm you. And we see him holding that trophy crying like that. That's not a Jordan we ever saw, but mm. that's not one that I ever saw in Chicago. Well, we saw the guy uh, with that those tiger eyes uh, that literally wanted to look like you. I'll tear your chest out of your heart and feed it to you. And if you're not man enough to stand up to me here uh, and, and play like a man, I don't want you on my team if you're not willing to put into work. If you're just about the lifestyle of cars and clothes and women and clubbing, I'll run you up out of here. Mm. And that's the guy that we saw for so many years, uh, so many months, uh, so to see him kind of in that moment, it was it was it was a happy moment. Like those were, I guess, tears of tears of joy uh, in, in a in a release. Like I can finally relax and truly relax. Because even when you're not off the court and you're you know enjoying some moments on the on the plane or whatever, in the back of your mind, you still are still grinding. Like this is not it yet. Even beating the Pistons, you're enjoying the moment of being the Pistons in the back of your mind. He's still thinking, if I ever want to be considered as good as Bird and Magic Johnson, i got to get a championship ring. So finally able to let go of all that. How'd you feel, especially as a Southern California uh, kid coming and beating, was, his, beating his hometown team, the team he idolized yeah, he wanted to play for? It was it was crazy. Uh, you know, I, I always wanted to be hosting a championship at the Fabulous Forum. <laughs> In a Lakers jersey, <laughs> you I did. Never thought I would. Never <laughs> thought I would be there uh, as a visitor mm. uh, in a Bulls jersey hoisting one. But I tell you what, um, my love for the Lakers was gone when we had to face them in the playoffs. That was like, forget it. I, I love you, worthy, but not, not, not after these next, you know, <laughs> series and, and Magic Johnson and you know taking a charge on Magic Johnson and you come down the lane. You know, it's just like blocking his shot. It, it, it was like it was weird being out there with guys that I had watched or listened to on the radio and Chick Hearn with his legendary voice calling the action for the Lakers, you know, as I'm supposed to be doing my homework, you know, I'm back in the back room and I got him on a, on the radio and, and uh, it, it was, you know, sneaking into the, to, not sneaking into the forum, but buying the cheap seats and trying to sneak down to the, to the lower bowl. Uh, those are all the things I, I did as a kid, you know, now I'm back here and I'm playing on this floor. I got friends and family in the stands and, 
I always wanted my parents to be there when I won a national uh, world championship. Mm. So I was excited. And I, and I think at some point in time, I find a, I found a quiet little corner myself and, and, ha- and, and had a good cry. And I thought about my mother and how I wished she was still alive to be here with me to celebrate this, this moment with me. That was, you know, it was, it was a release. Like I did it. Like mm. I didn't quit on myself. I didn't give up on my dreams. You know, Coach Smith wouldn't let me give up on my dreams. And and here I find myself going from, you know, literally embarrassed on draft night in front of my girlfriend. And my brother was over at the time. My, some of my college teammates, you know, thinking, nah, I'm going to be a mid, maybe late first rounder, high second round draft choice <laughs> to, to not getting drafted. It was one of the most, most embarrassing uh, moments that I think I, I had in, the, in my life at that time to – now all of a sudden I'm a, an NBA World Championship in my first my first year in the league. What was your relationship like with Phil Jackson? Professional, you know, and I, I hate that. At the time, I didn't care a whole lot. I had a chip on my shoulder. I had a, I had a goal. I wasn't just happy being on a roster after I made the team. Um, I wanted to play. You're a competitor, and yeah, uh, you know, it, it's weird. You, I I had never been in a game uh at, at anything i don't care if it was on the playground playing kickball you know, I, I was now if i wasn't the best player i was damn near uh the best player in anything that i did athletically uh baseball basketball you know kickball dodgeball whatever you call it free split tetherball you you name it uh, uh so when i i got to north carolina I played as a freshman. I didn't start, but I played. I contributed and, and got the, a good amount of minutes. Would have liked more, but I felt as always, always uh, whether we won or lost, I had something to do with it. Uh, and you go to Chicago, and all of a sudden you sit and you don't even take your warm ups off for five games. Wow. <laughs> uh, you go, oh, you know this. This is an absolutely horrible feeling. So it's it's not good enough just to make the roster. You realize that right away that I want more. Uh, there's, there's no way the competitive in me wants to just sit here and, and never get out of his, his uh, warm-up jersey. We lost our first three games that, that uh, in, 90, in 1991 season. So the team's struggling <laughs> after a brutal training camp. We come out thinking we get a high hopes, and uh, we just lay an egg our first three games. I don't even get a chance to play. So – that was that was difficult to swallow. So I had to realize early how I can get game type um, action in practice from guys that were tired from having played the night before. Uh, and I worked out a little strategy. We just have them all written down. But I realized what I could do to push the buttons of the guys that were playing in front of me and not in a negative way, but just get them to play hard. Uh, so I, so I could, so I could get game type action. So yeah. I do Cartwright. Cartwright hated to be cheap shotted. And so, and I wasn't a dirty player, but I knew if I wanted to get him to go to be as physical with me in practice and, uh, to teach me, rope a dope. I had to, I had to give him a, a, a shot generally around the ribs or his hips. He didn't, he had, kind of a funky body and i think those areas really bothered or sensitive to him he had a funky so I shot always try to, i always try to get him kind of in, in the back side of his hip area uh towards the rib area and that would get him going 
you know, Horace Grant was easy. You could just talk a little trash to Horace. Uh, and, you know, North Carolina and Clemson, mm. I'd just get up in his face and talk a little trash to him and get him going. And So I had different things I'd do with different starters to kind of push their buttons to get them to play a little harder with me so I could get some game-type action from them. Uh, and it helped me as I started getting that speed, getting those reps. So for the second half of the season, uh, I was firmly in the rotation. I wasn't always the first big off the bench. But I played almost in every game after that. And I started to see from Phil Jackson, uh, and I don't know if this was really his call. Hell, he's just a second-year head coach at this point. But when we would play teams that weren't as talented uh, and that was pretty much a sure thing that we were going to win, it was just a matter of by how much were we were going to win, uh, I started to notice I did not play or didn't play very many minutes in those games. But when we played against good teams, good teams out West or the Pistons or uh, Atlanta Hawks, uh, Philadelphia 76ers, Boston Celtics, I would play twice as many to three times as many minutes. And mama didn't raise no dummies. It was pretty easy to figure out that you're not playing the undrafted rookie uh, in a game that which you know you're going to win but you're playing because you want to because the general manager looks bad because he paid these other guys 10 times and 15 times as much. But you'll play me in the against the good competition because uh, you want to make sure you get the win. Mm. So I had a tough time with that. And like I said, I was a young player. I probably didn't handle as well as I could have. But when Phil would try to get close to me. Uh, I kind of gave him a stiff arm a little bit. Mm. So it was, you know, and it was a, it was a double-edged sword. I always, like I said, I always had a chip on my shirt. I always had to talk a little trash in practice. There was one time he tried to throw me out of practice for talking a little too much trash after the whistle to, to, to Horace, you know, or somebody like that. And, and uh, you know, I was Johnny, or excuse me, Tex Winter got all, all up in my face like he wanted to fight me, and I was just like. <laughs> Back. It was like 90 back then. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit, but only so far. And if he takes a swing at me, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do, Pedro Martinez's his old ass into, <laughs> over here into the chairs. Remember Pedro Martinez got the, oh, that old Cub, Cubs coach. Zimmer. Yeah, but Phil tried something out of practice, and I was like, I ain't leaving practice. I'll, I'll stand over here. I, you may have to put me in the game, but if I leave practice, you're going to cut my ass. <laughs> and I ain't leaving. I ain't giving you make it, make, make it that easy for you. So in the documentary, they talk about the book Jordan Rules. Did you ever read it? I never read it, and I wish I had read it because uh, some things have come to light to me that I was unaware of. One, the last week and uh, Sunday when they said Horace Grant yeah. was the one, was was the snitch. Well, he says he denies <laughs> it. Jordan says it was yeah. offhand. It was like, oh, yeah, it was Horace. And, 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 uh, and, and, and you know, Horace denies it, the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know who to believe on that. I, I, I kind of tend to lead to believe Jordan because just because he had all the damn Chicago cops around him, <laughs> was protecting him. Yeah. I figured they had some pretty good research department to be able to track down phone records or mm -hmm. whereabouts this that the others but I, I don't know I, I don't know what what the jordan rules were i didn't read the book uh so i don't even know what was said in there that would have only come from a player uh i'm glad they didn't mention me doing anything because I, I mean, no one really talked to me anyway but 
I, God forbid, I would have said something to a reporter it a, and not realize that the dude was writing a book. Yeah, was it a big but, de- was but, it as big a deal as, as they made it out in the documentary? It was, was that was it that big of a deal in the locker room? You remember? No, I don't remember it being that big a deal. I remember the book, but I never, like I said, I never read the book, mm-hmm. so I didn't know how infl- you know how inflammatory the book was, or I don't even remember what year it came out. Tell you quite honestly, now um, I think it was after the second some, championship. There were some things in a book that came out about me and what one of the assistant coaches had said about me and my personality, like worried about having to have a gun, and I was like, "Wait, what?" First of all, I thought me and the coach were cool. Second of all, I'm like, where would you have even gotten that from? I walked around with a smile on my face 90% of the time, and I was just happy to be there. So I, it was, I don't know where all this stuff came from for this book or how accurate mm. it was. The coach in particular was Johnny Bach, who was the defensive coach, who I would run, run through a brick wall for mm. if he told me to. Um, so I'm, I was a little surprised by that, and so I, I don't know if it's accurate. Of course, Johnny's past now, so I can't ask him. But <laughs> I was I was surprised to read it, and I was like, "Wow, I wonder if people really read this and think I was some sort of psycho." I mean, I was intense, I was competitive, I played with a chip on my shoulder, um, and I don't know if that would have translated into somebody making someone think that I had to call my son and tell him to send me a gun. Like, where, where does that even come from? I, yeah. I don't know. From that standpoint, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Like, wow, how how well did I know these coaches? that I thought were uh, that we were all cool, supposedly family to something like that coming out. And I go, I wonder if that's accurate, but I can't see somebody doing a quote like that. That would be inaccurate either. So like I said, I'm not going to call Sam up 25 later, years later. Like people don't like you. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. You, you move on, you live your life. I don't, I ain't going to bother me at all. I, can't you can't please everybody you're not going to be tight with everybody that's one thing i, I do know about uh professional sports team sports let's say life in general that can happen anywhere i don't care if you're in a in a locker room or in a, a boardroom that, that sometimes people just don't get along it's very true next week's episode of the documentary they they cover re- jordan retiring and playing baseball wouldn't you know he was retiring uh, I didn't. Um, I had no idea it was coming until it was announced publicly. Yeah. Uh, and I was I was at a a White Sox game um, in a suite, and I knew Jordan was at the game in a, a suite, uh, another suite. And when I saw the news, I knew where he was at. He was in the owner's box. And I immediately <clears throat> uh, left the box and went to the box where he was at. And he gave me a big hug and, and told me it was true. And we had a, and I was, I, I said a, a few words and I don't even remember what I, what I said. And I was in a state of shock that the whole conversation was less than 10 minutes, if, if maybe five. Um, but I know he was hurting. Um, he'd lost his father uh, that, that summer uh, to a murder. And I know, I know what kind of pain that is. Uh, and I, the first thing I wanted to do was to take some time away from basketball. Um, the summer I was supposed to uh, try out for the Olympic team um, following the 87-88 was, was too hard for me. I, I went to the trials and, and I had to leave. I had to, Coach Smith had to come get me. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it because that was a big dream that I shared with my mother was to represent the United States in the Olympics. Uh, so I understand 
the, you know, the, the emotion or range of which he was probably going through, not to say that we talked about it, but I always thought his love for basketball was so great that this decision is coming from somewhere else other than I don't love the game anymore. And then I want to walk away from it. And that was, that was, that was my takeaway that he would play again when he was ready. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know when that would, would be, unfortunately, for me. <laughs> but my contract situation was such that I only had one more. I'd signed a one-year deal going into training camp that year. And I knew it was going to be pretty much going to be my last mm. unless you know, something miraculous happened. Just because, you know, after winning three championships, Phil Jackson told me I, he, he wasn't sure what kind of player I was. So I, I just that that told me that it had nothing to do with my my ability i was out playing like a lot of guys that were playing in front of me um it just had to do with he didn't know me personally and it was time for me to go and now that i see some of the stuff that comes out in that book you know like they worry about me psychologically i'm like <laughs> okay that's now now i see where that's coming yeah. from. Like, okay yeah it, it had nothing to do with me being able to do on the court, which is bizarre because then they go sign Rodman, who's probably the biggest nut job they had yeah. in the history in the, in the history of the league. You worry about somebody toting a gun to practice. Hell, he was he had a gun in the parking lot of the arena. What was that season like without Jordan? Your last season with the Bulls. You know, it was challenging. Um, I think Pippen had learned a lot from the Dream Team. Uh, competing in practice and being around those guys that were all leaders and alpha males. Um, so he stepped up as, as a leader on the squad and was doing it on the court and was improving his leadership around the locker room and off the court. Um, but it was, it was challenging when, when he refused to go into the game against the Knicks uh, when Phil Jackson drew up a play for Tony Kukoc instead of for for Pip, uh, that that was a that was a difficult situation. I mean, we were down 0-2. This is Game Three, and we didn't have our best player on the floor from the final moments of the game. Uh, I'd never seen. What do you remember from that moment? Right. What do you remember from that moment? Well, well you know, it, it, we had to call back-to-back timeouts. Um, we everyone was so shook. Uh, and trying to talk to Pip and, and try to get him, you, you don't want to do this. Like you need to be on the floor. You can't be over here on the bench or refusing to go in. This is, I was worried about his legacy as a player. I mean, you're talking about, I didn't know he's going to be a hall of famer yet at that point, but certainly he was an NBA all-star every year. Uh, and you might argue that he could have been in the MVP running. We won 55 games that year. Uh, I think we were one bad call away from going back to the finals. In my opinion, I but, agree. Um, I was afraid he was going to get Bill Bucknerd. You know, Bill Buckner, Hall of Famer, played as played great for the for every team he played for. He's he's known for a ball rolling between his legs, you know, making one error in a in a crucial moment. And I think that's what I thought might happen to Pippen. He he made a, a, a made a bad error, not on the floor, but in judgment of not going on to the floor. I thought that was going to. I was afraid that it might haunt him. Um, he ended up winning the game, and then. He has a huge game four. We end up tying up the series. Uh, thank goodness, and it, it didn't. It, I don't think people even talk about that when they associate Scotty with Scotty Pippen, which is which is a good thing. Um, but it was it was a it was a difficult year. But I was proud of the effort that we had. I missed some games to a knee injury to start the season. And I came back and 
I played well. I, my, one of my highest point totals I ever averaged uh, as a pro that year. I was in the rotation and, and feeling good. Started a few games against smaller centers. Um, I thought everybody contributed, which was which was awesome. We didn't have that one guy to throw the ball to, you know, when, when that triangle broke down. But Pippen, he raised his game and provided some huge moments for us uh, on the floor all, all season long. So all in all, I, I'd have to say that, that was a good group. And, and Hugh Holland's calling foul with two seconds to go on a <laughs> – Finger, fingertips touched each other. Our fingernails touched each other on a follow through by Hubert Davis. I mean, that honestly, I think that we win that game and we would have come back to uh, Chicago and closed them out because we, we kicked their butt in game six pretty good. Do you keep in touch with anybody from those teams? You know, uh, I did for a long time. Um, and, and I still do. I just don't see guys as, as much as I did when I, Retired. I played. I was one of the youngest guys, so I was one of the last guys to to retire from that '91 team. Um, but Stacy King was doing basketball for the Bulls. He was uh, on their TV crew, and uh, BJ was working with the Bulls for a little while, and then went on to be a player agent. We would bump into each other. Scotty Pippen, uh, ambassador with the Bulls, and Horace Grant now as well. Uh, I, I'd see Craig Hodges out in Los Angeles. Of course, Jordan. You know, you always see him with the well, Bobcats slash Hornets. So <laughs> yeah. it, it was, it was, it was always good to see those guys. And it was always like, not a whole lot of time had passed. Um, we had a 20 year reunion, well, 10 years ago and, uh, everybody came back, which was really cool. I think BJ and Phil had other commitments, but everybody else was there. And, uh, it, it was really cool. Cause I got to bring my kids back and I didn't have my kids until I was almost finished playing so they never really knew what that whole Bulls era was all about. And um, to be honored at, I think it was halftime of one of the games was, was pretty cool because I got to kind of see for a couple of days around Chicago and uh, some of the parties that they had and being on the court. And we were well recept- uh, received by the fans, which was cool. Uh, they got to experience a little bit about that because they couldn't understand why people would come up and ask for my autographs. <laughs> but we'd be sitting Sitting at Applebee's. Because Dad's right. a BFD, that's why. Uh, yeah, 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 we're sitting here. Dad's a BFD. Pancakes, and they're like, you know, why, why, why are people asking you for your autographs, Dad? I'm like, well, I was, I was the man next to the man. I was really good teeth, you know. <laughs> yeah, you got three rings to prove it, too, my friend. Yeah, that's right. I, I you know, it's funny. I mean, now that the the uh, last Daz documentary, my son wants all my old Chicago Bulls gear. Oh, like, I bet you have that white warm up on you had when you were playing when you were playing the Knicks. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's in a box somewhere. <laughs> Thanks to Scott for the great conversation. Trust me, he's even a better person than he sounds. Once again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram to get a preview of what that week's episode is going to be all about with our 30-second video that the Fuxia Media team produces. Twitter, Pod, Instagram, Pod, and our company accounts on both platforms are at Fuxia Media. If you are a company and would like to be part of this podcast or would like Fuxia Media to help design your own podcast, Email me, ryan at fushawmedia.com. Finally, this episode is being released the Friday before Mother's Day. So I want to say happy Mother's Day to my mom, Judy Lindsay. She has always been my biggest cheerleader. 
At times, I feel like she's had more faith in me than I have. No matter what, I know that I can always count on her. I love you very much, Mom, and I know you're crying while you're listening to this. In fact, this podcast might not be possible without her encouragement. All right, everyone, stay safe.